podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science platform. I'm your host, Sabrina Brando, and this month, February 2021, we take a deep dive into the topic of the five domains models on the PAUSE platform. And today I'm delighted to welcome Nicolas de Graaf, who is the Accreditation Manager with the Zoo and Aquarium Association in Australia. Welcome, Nicholas. Thank you, Sabrina. I'm happy to be here. Delighted. So we are going to talk about, of course, all the wonderful things that ZA is doing for their members and, of course, your job in particular, which is all about accreditation and care and welfare. And so before we go into all those details, can you give a short introduction to yourself? Like, how did you get into the zoo and aquarium community? And how did you get working for ZA? Sure. So a bit of a long history. So I've probably been working in the zoo sector for just over 20 years now, actually. Um, I've always had an interest in animals, but never really figured that I'd end up working in the zoo sector. Um, and at one point, I was actually considering, I was studying mosses um, at university as well as animals and was considering like going to Antarctica, never really thinking I'd have a career with animals. But as it turned out, I had an opportunity to um, work as a voluntary keeper. Um, and uh, at that time, I finished my university degree. I didn't have any other commitments at the time. So I thought, this is great, you know, because I'm interested in animals and this is a great opportunity just to get that exposure um, as it turned out, I worked there every day for about three months without much of a break only because I had not much else to do really in my personal life. Um, and at the end of that, they said, hey, you know, you're showing a lot of commitment, a lot of hard work. We'd really like to um, offer you a, a job. Um, so that's how I got into zoos. Um, and then since then, I've been uh, working uh, in a number of different roles. Um, so I started off as a keeper. Um, more as a generalist keeper, really, like working with different uh, uh, taxa. Um, but my main passion was probably working with primates and in particular Southeast Asian primates, uh, such as um, leaf monkeys and gibbons. Um, the interest I had there was just basically to see the, uh, or to, to develop the knowledge uh, in the relationship between uh, primates and plants. Um, and how they work together. I guess that passion then turned into uh, exhibit design related um, kind of work where I started critiquing a lot of the internal habitats of animal enclosures um, and offering suggestions to improve them or um, how to uh, offer ideas for future designs and all that sort of stuff. And I guess from that position, I, I from that uh, uh, from those discussions I've been having with with um, my managers and stuff, I was uh, offered a position to take on uh, the role of exhibit planning officer. Um, and in that, I sort of 
had to work in making sure that uh, new enclosures that are being designed uh, were designed to meet the needs of both the keepers as well as the animals um, and to comply with any uh, legislation or standard for enclosures and zoos um, that was uh, around. And having to say that during this course of you know, my work, I, I was working in various different zoos. So I'm based in Australia now, but I started off working in Southeast Asia overseas, um, came back to Australia early in 2000 and started working here. Um, so with my time working with uh, in the exhibit planning role, I got to get really familiar with animal welfare uh, related um, laws and regulations. Um, and after a lot of work in developing new enclosures um, and writing briefs and making sure they meet standards and stuff, uh, the opportunity came up to work in the accreditation program for the Zoo and Aquarium Association. It was meant to be a temporary role to help uh, establish the uh, new framework for accreditation. Um, but as it turned out, I ended up staying on to, uh, to keep it going. And that was about eight years ago now, and, and I'm still here. So um, yeah, the, the I've progressed basically from working with animals, having an interest there, and then into enclosure design and working with welfare regulations, um, and now into uh, animal welfare. And I think the, the biggest thing that grabbed me, that, that sort of motivated me, um, and I'm really enjoying the role I've got now in managing the accreditation program. And I think what initially got me motivated in this space was when I read the new concept at the time about what we call positive welfare, um, I reflected on in my past where I was slightly frustrated with some of the projects that were, I was involved with as exhibit planner in that there was um, always the point in time when everyone's excited with a, a beautiful designed enclosure, all this good stuff was gonna happen, but then the reality of cost comes in and we start having to cut costs for budgets. And, and you see all this beautiful stuff just get taken away from the design piece by piece. And, it, and you sit there and, and you sort of, in despair kind of go, oh, this is so you know terrible. There's so many opportunities are going away, but we could never really put words to what was happening at the time. All we could say was, oh, well, it's disappointing, but you know, so be it. And it was always reduced down to what the animal absolutely needs um, in order to make um, uh, the enclosure um, suitable. But once I read the idea of positive welfare and what it actually means, I realized that was the stuff that we couldn't put words to when we had to make those cuts. Um, what we we're actually removing and all that was the opportunities for animals to have a huge range of positive experiences because we were too focused on uh, making sure the animal was, uh, had minimal negative experiences um, and anything beyond that was considered, let's call it a bit of a luxury maybe. Um, but like I said, back then we didn't have words to it so we couldn't explain it that way. Um, but now when we, now that we recognize um, what we're talking to in, in the concept of positive animal welfare, it's, it's really something that I thought that's, that's the part that really made this job exciting was how do we find those elements and bring them back into the animal's lives? And really that's, that's why I've stayed on is, is to sort of keep pursuing that quest, I suppose. 
Wonderful, Nick. Thanks so much for this really great and dense uh, introduction. And I definitely want to circle back to positive welfare and like how you talk about needs and preferences. And of course, you know, feelings of animals, predominantly positive feelings for animals. Um, there's a lot of people listening to the podcast that are either students or maybe wanting to change their career. So do you have any suggestions for people who want to get into this career? Like you, you, you know, you went from studying, wanting to study mosses and then having this opportunity and, um, you know, getting into a zoo and also you traveled abroad. Do you have suggestions for people who really want to get into the, into the, the zoo community field? Um, I guess I'm probably not the right person to give advice in terms of how to pursue a career because I never really had a plan. Um, I kind of just worked with it. But I guess in that, the advice I would give is keep an open mind. I, I um, just was willing to uh, take on an opportunity um, regardless of where it was. So I was willing to move overseas. I was willing to take on um, a challenge um, in terms of, you know, grasping new concepts or something like that. Um, and just working with it. Um, so I guess that would be my advice is, is, I mean, of course, there's always a good, you know, it's always good to have a plan, but um, sometimes they just don't work out and you just got to be able to be flexible and open-minded enough to find the passion and the, um, the interest in what's being offered to you and, and working with that. Um, I've had that approach and that's pretty much how I've sort of ended up doing what I'm doing is just following my interest and finding interest in finding joy in whatever I'm doing at the time. Wonderful. And I think there's also such a, you know, beautiful nugget there where, you know, you talked about how you did all the work, you know, people clearly saw you were committed to this. You were putting, like you say, bringing in joy and all the commitment to it. And at the same time, you were also willing to, you know, investigate, to research, to cr constructively critique you know, what are we doing? How are we doing this? How can we make it better? Which then, you know, rolled you into all kinds of other positions, because sometimes we get maybe a little bit worried or not always are we in the right um, environments also where all this is possible, but still, you know, finding ways to positively, constructively critiqued, which then also propelled your career into exhibit design. And in the important part also that you talked about of, you know, designing for all stakeholders, the, the keepers, the caregivers and, and the animals. And, and then, you know, going into learning more about, you know, legislation and like you say, keeping an open mind and really growing all the time. So that's, that's been really valuable uh, you know, to hear all that. So thank you so much for sharing that. Did you have any particular, like, you know, we always love good stories. And when you were working at the zoo, you said you had an interest in primates. Do you have like a nice animal story uh, on primates uh, before we continue on the work that you're doing at ZA? Oh, okay. Um, Putting you on the spot here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. No, that's okay. I guess two stories come to mind. Um, probably with different uh, different con uh, perspectives on it. But one I remember was um, working with a couple of orphan gibbons. Um, so in Southeast Asia, uh, a lot of um, young gibbons are um, uh, used in the pet trade, unfortunately. Um, but what happens quite a lot of the time is that these animals get surrendered to the zoos 
um, because they realize, you know, after a certain point in time, the animals are a bit difficult to handle or they're, they're, they're more needy than they expected them to be. I mean, considering primates are highly social animals, it's, it's, um, it's something that's not surprising that when they, people realize that, but we ended up having this uh, island full of um, what we call the orphan gibbons um, and they all get along well together and stuff. But there was this uh, one in particular that um, very friendly animal and we got caught out in a massive, massive tropical storm one, one afternoon. And the, at the time we needed to um, bring animals in, you know, when the storms hit, but this one individual was missing and I could hear her calling through the rain and the thunder, but I could not find her. And um, uh, I actually eventually spotted her clinging onto the side of um, the island that they were housed on. Um, she must have been spooked from the storm, went down to the water level and then just held on where she was partially submerged in the water and she was cold and stuff. And so I jumped in without thinking much about it and approached her. And as soon as I reached out, she just jumped onto me and held on. And that was just a, an incredible um, feeling, you know, of, of this animal just going, you know, thank you so much. And, and I guess that's probably where I realised I kind of, you know, I knew it in the past that animals had feelings and stuff, but but that experience kind of really opened my mind uh, to what what do animals think, you know, what goes on in in their brains and that sort of stuff. Um, so it was that. The the other story was really following my interest in uh, the relationship between primates and um, plants in their environments, and particularly studying things like um, managing captive leaf monkeys. Um, and historically, it's been difficult to manage these animals because they can eat a lot of um, plant material um, that they're not suited for and becomes quite sick from it. But in this case, we were given the opportunity to do a big study on the idea of if we had a densely vegetated enclosure, but it was vegetated with the right plants that was safe for the animal to eat, but not tasty enough for them to prefer to eat it compared to the diet we provide would that be possible and so we put some time into that and uh, studied all these different types of plants that were available in the in the area um, studied their diet um, and did a lot of trials um, with a whole range of different species of plants to provide to the leaf monkeys um, and came up with a list in ranking order of preferences and basically what we ended up doing was planting the enclosure out with their least preferred food plants and feeding them the most preferred food plants. And all, of course, within reason to make sure, you know, balanced diets and all that sort of stuff. But where we ended up was this enclosure that was so fully vegetated with these leaf monkeys in there is that we had to actually prune it every so often uh, to keep it under control. Um, so, the, you know, there's some really, there's some periods in time where, you know, these experiences kind of really, made me sit back and go, wow, we're, we're actually achieving something here. We're actually doing something that's rewarding. Wonderful. Yes, of course. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we say, well, you know, have things changed? You no, know, are things changing? And it's exactly all these stories together from people who care for animals and all the things that we have done and still are doing that really, you know, to bring them to mind, especially when things are maybe a little bit difficult, or like you say, you know, maybe because of the, the cost cutbacks, we have to give up things, but 
yeah this and beautiful connections between you and, and the animal and and of course yeah she must have been very very happy that you uh, came to the rescue and somebody was there for her to cling on to and also what a great yes. example for them because we often with not just with primates but also with other animals we have maybe trouble keeping vegetation intact or you know plants and trees growing um, not just because of destruction but just of eating and so on and really this systematic approach to understanding you know what they prefer to eat and what they actually leave alone um, which then allows and to you know like you say uh, for a balanced diet but also a vegetation to sit in to hide in to get shade from uh, and then you also need to uh, prune them back uh, but that's like the, a luxury problem right so that's just such a wonderful yes. example yeah 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 yeah, no, something we're really happy with because it, it, it worked out really well. Yeah, yeah, it's a great... Uh, did, did that get um, written up somewhere, maybe in uh, keeper notes or in a paper or something that people like, oh, I want to learn more about what they did there. Can, can we maybe put a link with this podcast uh, to that information? That's actually a good question. I, I probably have to go back and find out because interestingly enough, that was around the time when, when that project was actually winding up, um, I moved on to join Zar and um, wasn't actually there to see it completed. Although talking to the staff at the time, um, they did mention uh, the, you know, the, the, uh, the point that they actually had to go in and regularly prune and all that sort of stuff. So whether it was written up and presented, I'll actually have to get back to you on. Okay, no problem. Yeah, yeah. it's always, a, I think so many um, facilities do so many wonderful projects and, you know, care staff often have such great ideas and solutions to things, uh, but we're not always uh, good yet at putting it out there. Uh, this might be out there, of course, but uh, this is also, I guess, a call uh, for all of you listening out there, you know, to uh, make sure, you know, keep in one way or another some kind of track and write it up for as a blog or you know even better do research and not better i should i should rephrase that but uh, it would be of course it's very good because we always talk about evidence-based decisions you know to attach some sort of research to it and data collection so that you can write it up for peer review uh, because all these really great experiences are so important for us to move the field forward and there's so much to learn from each other so uh, yeah let's uh, let's uh, mm. see if we uh, ha uh, get some feedback uh, on where this goes and if there is then i will certainly uh, make sure that there is a link with this podcast so that uh, you can find out uh, more about that Wonderful. Thanks so much, Nick. Yeah. No worries. So I was um, wanting to go back to, you talked about, of course, you know, joining um, ZA and you mentioned that that happened also because you were very much involved in, in legislation and, uh, or your knowledge, growing your knowledge of legislation and welfare and all that. And uh, can you talk a little bit about because obviously, you know, you're based in a different part uh, of the world than here in Europe, where I'm based. Can you talk a little bit about uh, welfare legislation in, uh, in Australia and how that, um, you know, reflects on zoos and, uh, and aquariums? Sure. So um, in Australia, and I'll, I'll include New Zealand in this because we're, we're sort of, we work very closely with New Zealand as well, but 
um, as a region, but um, uh, in, in Australia, we have um, a number of different states and territories. Um, historically, the states and territories were in charge of their own welfare legislation. Um, and so, for example, in New South Wales, which is where I am, uh, the New South Wales government has some very uh, highly developed um, standards and regulations for um, exhibiting animals. Um, so zoo related um, standards and regulations um, based on ensuring uh, good welfare for the animals, but also safety for the people who visit the zoos and for the people who work in zoos, uh, making sure there's um, the right um, uh, or I should say appropriate use of animals. So, you know, if animals are to be exhibited, they have to be exhibited with certain forms of information available for people to learn um, the roles they play and all that sort of stuff. So it, it's, it's, it's quite a robust um, set of regulations in New South Wales. And it's a similar case for other states and territories, although different government departments probably have different ways of managing those things uh, between the different states and territories. Um, but the uh, probably about 10 years, probably a bit longer now, more than 10 years ago, um, the federal government at the time decided to um, form the Australian Animal Welfare Strategy, which was a national attempt to um, address animal welfare in Australia. Um, it was very successful because they called in a lot of all, I should say, uh, of the different sectors um, that uh, involve animals. Um, so anything from agriculture uh, to zoos, um, to rodeos, to um, the pet industry, fisheries, um, all sorts of uh, uh, industries involved in using animals uh, into one forum uh, to come up with a strategy to make sure that um, animal welfare was uh, you know, top of mind in, in all our work. Um, that was going well for a few years. However, uh, it had to be um, disbanded uh, at, a, at a later point, um, not to lay blame anywhere, but um, it was at a time when there was a change of government and um, there was a, had to be a review of priorities and uh, as well as uh, financial um, issues. Uh, so the animal welfare strategy was... Um, basically, uh, admit, um, what's the word? Uh, they went back to the different, uh, to the individual states and territories and saying, you know, this really is the jurisdiction of the individual states and territories. It's not a federal um, uh, thing. But because of the success of the program, all the people involved wanted to continue that forum. Um, and so that actually turned into what's now called the Animal Welfare Collaborative. And it's a forum for, um, you know, all these different sectors to get together and still continue the dialogue to develop a knowledge and understanding in animal welfare um, in, in the nation. So from those, from the initial animal welfare strategy, um, we were given uh, some funding grants to help develop um, federal standards for exhibiting animals in Australia. Um, and from that exercise, we actually um, came into the understanding of the five domains framework as well as the concept of positive welfare. And, and that's really what kicked off our program in accreditation was through that forum and through the opportunities that was provided to us at the time, uh, our understanding in this space of welfare just um, exploded. You know, we, we 
we we got so excited with all this new information that was coming in and and um, based on that we were able to develop the program into what it is today um, so as a nation um, and this says the same for New Zealand as well um, the governments do take animal welfare quite seriously um, and uh, where in the past it's been addressed in different sectors for different industries um, we're now sort of starting to all recognize that animal welfare is animal welfare and that um, regardless of which sector or industry you're working in the needs of the animals are pretty much the same um, and so now what I'd like to see is a consolidation of that approach um, to making sure that all animals, it doesn't matter what industry they're involved with, um, get treated the same way. Yes, I think you drive home such an important aspect, which is really, you know, collaboration and learning and this interdisciplinary approach of looking at animal welfare and, you know, what and how can we learn from each other? How can we, you know, enforce each other and move towards, like you say, that consolidation of how we, you know, treat animals, how we care for them, how we protect them, and uh, really looking at what is it that they need and, of course, also what they prefer. And, and if I remember well, the five domain model by Professor Meller, who is really, you know, a driving force in the zoo and aquarium community with regards to looking at, you know, how do we approach animal welfare, I think his first paper on this topic was in 94, where it was published regarding laboratory animals. And only, um, you know, uh, two decades later only, um, that's not to make it, you know, sound uh, bad, but uh, it took a long time to come up and um, for us to think about how that framework can also then uh, work for other uh, communities. And I think it's such so wonderful that, that Professor Meller has worked in such a wide space and continues to work uh, collaborating and also with, you know, um, people like um, Nagai Bosolei, who is going to come on to a webinar on the PAUSE platform. And really, how do we all, you know, work together and look at how various technologies, frameworks and so on can be used and how can we continue to learn from each other? So that's, that's really wonderful to hear how uh, that both in Australia and New Zealand, how that approach um, is being um, approached really. Yeah, and it's, I actually find it really refreshing. It, it's, you know, in my, in my times as a keeper and stuff, animal welfare was known, you know, quite, I mean, you know, in the zoo industry, everyone knows animal welfare, but um, it, for a while there, it became something that was some that, you know, people kind of didn't want to bring up unless there was a problem. And, and over time, it sort of created this uh, not to say a taboo, but but the moment somebody said, oh, I'm here to talk to you about the welfare of your animals, you, you get nervous, you know, because you're starting to think, have I done something wrong? You know, what's the problem? But with with the work that David Mellor and Naya Bosley have have produced, it it's turned things around to sort of say it, it doesn't have to be a problem to talk about it. Like it's it's something you can actually talk about because you're proud of what you've achieved or or the the opportunities that it can offer by talking about it, um, you know, and so I find that really refreshing to, to to talk about animal welfare in that sense. You know, what can we do, and 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 what does this mean to for for improving 
or not so much of improving, but enhancing the experience of animals in future. And, and that's really what, what drives me. It's, it's something that I really enjoy talking about. Yes, I completely agree. Um, you know, you and I have had conversations also when I was um, working for the World Associations of Zoos and Aquariums and, you know, about really what can we, you know, do for animals? How can we, you know, be even better at what we do and, and improve things or enhance things, like you say, you know, how can we facilitate how we can promote animal well-being and the important part there also what can we continue to learn from each other and to openly talk about it um, and of course you know I think a lot of the nervousness or the un, you know comfortableness like you point uh, you know obviously comes from a long history of much of even today I would say even though we have shifted to more publications on uh, positive welfare and um, you know, the positive opportunities that we have to act for animals. A long time, of course, for decades, it has been about, uh, as you mentioned also, about mitigating, you know, the negative aspects. And, uh, and of course, a lot of it has been around, you know, anxiety and fear and, you know, the five freedoms, of course, also the wording of it and the whole history has made that, you know, a lot of people, and, and I note that same when I started Animal Concepts, 16 years ago, you know, I wouldn't, even with the word training, I would say interaction because people would think, you know, training, I would think of a tiger jumping through a, a burning hoop and not necessarily as a tool, you know, to collaborate with animals and, and, you know, care for them on a daily basis. And the word welfare, as you say, also was really like, oh, there must be something wrong if you're saying it. And I think we have moved into a positive sphere uh, where now when we say welfare, we you know, no, we're talking from a holistic perspective. We're you're not only talking about mitigating perhaps some of the negative experience and effects, uh, but we're very much talking about how can we promote predominantly positive welfare. Um, so yes, there's been such an evolution in our field and it's wonderful to do this together. And as you say, very refreshing uh, to be able to talk about it without people thinking you're you know, either against the zoos and aquariums for bringing it up or, um, and as you mentioned very in the beginning already, this constructive criticism, critiquing in a way that where we are really, you know, we are the actors for animals in a way we, but we also want to set up the environments that animals have, you know, as John Coe talks about a lot, agency, you know, choice and control. Um, so yeah, I think it's wonderful. And as you say, I always enjoy very much talking about this. And so I'm delighted to have you on the podcast and talk together <laughs> about this. Uh, because that's why we are in this job, right? We want to uh, make a difference uh, for animals and continue to do so together. So thank you so much for Definitely. being here. Yeah. Yep. No, that's all right. And I could keep talking about this forever, but uh, yes. I know that um, <laughs> not many people enjoy listening to it forever, but still. Yeah. Well, luckily, we're, we're lucky that people listening to the podcast, they are, um, you know, often as, as enthusiastic about animals and uh, want to keep talking about it as well. So can we, I would love to hear more about people are like, okay, accreditation manager, you're managing the accreditation. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, what your role is exactly at ZA? And also, you know, there's a big difference between accreditation and animal welfare assessments and the assessments of the assessments. And uh, you talk, yes, uh, you and I have talked that, about that uh, quite a lot. It's very important 
Um, and can you talk a little bit about your role and those aspects of your role? Sure. So um, I guess when it, um, as accreditation manager, my role is to manage the accreditation program. That goes without saying, of course, but um, the um, our accreditation program initially started off with the one that I've been involved with. We, we had an, accredit, an accreditation program previously um, before I joined ZAR. Um, but at the time that I joined, the decision was made to have an accreditation program that was focused solely on good animal welfare or positive animal welfare, uh, because it was understood that um, positive animal welfare could underpin everything else we could do as a zoo or an aquarium. So if our interest was in conservation or in sustainability or community enrichment or research, um, it was all underpinned by positive animal welfare. And, and so the idea was to create this program that focused in that area. Um, although in saying that, we're now expanding our program into other areas such as conservation, sustainability, um, biosecurity, and, and an element of safety. Um, but our flagship um, objective still and always will be positive animal welfare and accreditation. So it, it was an interesting journey of understanding in this space where um, we had David Mellor on one shoulder um, advising us on how to assess for animal welfare, what animal welfare means, um, and the assessment of animal welfare was, you know, regarding the five domains model, that's a model to help us assess the welfare of the animals. But on the other shoulder, we, we had a, another person by the name of Peter Holtman, and he, he came from the um, credentialing and assurance industry, um, and he was providing advice on how to appropriately um, conduct an audit or conduct a site visit and a review uh, to make sure that whatever it is that you're assessing, it's done so transparently and objectively and all that sort of stuff. So combining the two forms of knowledge together helped us create the program that we have today. Um, so in, in regards to your question about you know assessing assessments, um, we we have a method that we've developed to assess the welfare of the animal, and so what that tool helps us do is determine, you know, based on the current situation that this animal is in, is its welfare good or bad, um, and if it's good, could it be better? Um, if it's bad, of course, uh, it needs to be corrected. Um, but then there's also questions of, for example, was the welfare of the animal assessed uh, consistently uh, between zoos, between species, between people doing the assessment? Um, and then, of course, there's a question of if we were to run an accreditation program, which is technically speaking, we're certifying a zoo in recognition of their achievement in positive welfare. Is that process of certifying the zoo also objective and fair and consistent. Um, and so what started off as an initial idea of, we just have to apply the five domains, confirm the welfare of the animal and things are good. We quickly realized that that was actually one part of many parts of a, an accreditation program. So not only are we having to make sure that we assist, assess the welfare of the animals uh, consistently and transparently, but that the information that comes out of those assessments is managed also transparently and consistently. 
um, in terms of making sure that um, if, an, if a zoo is accredited for this, what does accreditation actually mean? Uh, we actually then uh, worked out that assessing the welfare of the animal um, on its own was uh, assuring, uh, but that only told us what the welfare of the animal is currently. And our accreditation program focuses on three years. So if a zoo, if a zoo and aquarium uh, is accredited by us, it lasts for three years. Um, so the question naturally then would be, well, how do we know that the, the welfare of the animal, well, we'll have confidence in the welfare of the animal for the next three years. They've shown us now that the welfare is good. How do we know that it'll continue to be good? And so we expanded the program into assessing, um, you know, types of animal care. Uh, that is implemented by the organisation um, because the thinking would be that if the organisation can show us how they care for their animal, then the uh, confidence that we would have in making sure the animal's welfare was good down the road is, um, is, is strengthened. So our program now has two components to it, which is assessing the welfare of the animal, which is applying the five domains, and assessing the systems uh, that underpin the organisation to make sure that the care provided to the animal uh, gives us uh, that, that uh, amount of um, confidence that the welfare will continue to be good uh, for the future. Um, so in my role, um, a lot of that work in developing in those areas is involved, um, making sure that whatever it is in terms of the documentation that we develop and stuff is, um, is appropriate, um, uh, is relevant to a lot of our members um, and is reasonable. Um, we, we don't want to be creating um, a program that is either impossible to achieve or so easy to achieve that there's no challenge or need for it. So it's maintaining that balance. Um, and so, and I'm going to go off on a tangent here, but uh, we also have a committee that works with us. And, and the role of the committee is really to help us make sure that the criteria as zoos develop over time, as our knowledge develops over time, the committee is there to make sure that, that our criteria for accreditation stays relevant and is updated accordingly. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing process. It's not just this sort of one-off assessment, everything's good forever. It's this ongoing continual improvement, um, monitoring of the success of not only the program, but of also um, how individual zoos and aquariums monitor the welfare of their animals and make sure that the welfare of their animals is good. Yes, I think it's so interesting and important to hear all these different aspects and facets of an accreditation program. And you mentioned, you know, your base has been really the animals, the well-being of the animals. And um, I always say, you know, animal well-being is an end in itself. And, you know, as much as we are committed also to conservation and education and everything else, you know, the, it is important that, you know, the well-being of the animals um, is optimal. And like you say, you know, really looking at the, the care of the animals, but also understanding how do zoos and aquariums or other facilities monitor the animals across time. Because like you say, you're just seeing, you know, one day or a few days that you're on site. Um, but 
looking at the long-term data for individuals and understanding so how do how are the animals faring most of the time right uh, that's what you want to have insights in uh, beyond of course the other aspects of the accreditation that you mentioned and you can you talk a little bit more about also in what ways are you looking at you know assessing we've talked a little bit about five domains what are some of the questions or activities that zoos and aquariums um, under ZA, um, you know, have to engage with during accreditation and assessments of assessments? Okay, so, um, I mean, I guess the very first piece um, is what we call the welfare assessment tool. Um, and that was developed off using the five domains model. It's, it's meant to be a, um, an assessment tool that can be applied in the field. So it's written in a way that people can go over a number of different uh, physical domain conditions um, and to determine which of those conditions are existing within the animal. Um, we need to look at a number of um, observable measures that would help inform us what's going on. So for example, um, the condition of uh, restrictions on food intake, um, which is in the nutrition domain, if that's, uh, how do we determine that that condition is occurring within the animal versus opportunities to eat enough food, which is the opposite condition, which is of course the ideal one to have. Um, and so we look at it as, well, what's telling us, what, what information do we see before us that we're aware of um, based on the species behavior, on our knowledge of the care provided, um, on the physical condition of the animal, any kind of measure that would tell us whether the animal is likely to be restricted from food intake or has opportunities to eat enough food. And the combination of all that information uh, helps us determine the outcome. Um, so that's, that's the welfare assessment tool and kind of how it works. But then we look at the other side of things, which is um, the organization's policies and procedures and sort of say, okay, um, we know, you know, from the welfare assessment, we've established the animal has opportunities to eat enough food. They're fine. They're not going hungry. There's food available all the time. They can access it. It's 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 um, it's uh, appropriate food for the animal. It's nutritionally balanced. All of that is good. But the question we need to now ask you is, how do we know it will be good for the next three years? How do we know that this diet that this animal has will continue uh, to be the right diet for this animal? And so the, that question will mean that there'll be some discussion and um, a provision of information from the, from the member participating in accreditation that shows us that they will monitor uh, food intake, um, that they will review the diets to make sure that um, the diet will continue to be um, contemporary you know, with, with any future research in animal nutrition that might show us that you know, a change in the diet is required. Um, that the diets will be adjusted according to the life stage or health status of the animal. So there's veterinary involvement um, in, in that area. Um, and, and so when we put the two parts of that story together, um, we could probably come out with a, and this is kind of the, the report that we would provide at the end, would be to say, we have confirmed that the, the animal uh, enjoys and benefits from the diet it has and we know that that diet will continue to be provided in the appropriate ways for this animal in the future because of the systems that underpin it. And, and that's the story we want to achieve in a, in a welfare accreditation. 
Yes, and I think, like you say, you know, this continuous improvement, this continuous incorporation of new information, are we still up to date with all the new science that comes out or new, you know, understandings in practice? And really, you know, making sure all that gets incorporated in, you know, not just the practices, but also species uh, care guidelines and so on. And like you also mentioned, this importance of looking across lifespan. So how do things change? You know, many zoos are working very closely with all kinds of different software and uh, with the use of software or other technologies to really understand, you know, what is needed in which phase of animals' lives. So yeah, so, so many uh, different and important aspects there. And can you also talk a little bit to how do you support your members? You know, you have a lot of different members. How do you support them in their animal welfare goals and questions? Yeah, so um, in a couple of ways. So we, we do offer some uh, training and workshops uh, with our members uh, in sort of developing our understanding in welfare assessments and uh, applying the five domains uh, model in an assessment and understanding what we mean when we talk about welfare. Um, you know, we talk uh, and we focus quite a lot on making sure that we're, we're, we're saying care provided to the animal um, is important, but is not the same as uh, assessing for its experiences. Um, because we've, we've got many uh, situations where you could show that you provide the right care to the animal. You know, it meets all the standards that are, are stipulated and all that sort of stuff. But the animal is probably still um, uh, quite unhappy with its situation. Because what we have to take into account is the animal, the individual animal draws upon its own lived experience and its own interpretation of the world around it and responds to it accordingly. So we can't provide the same amount of care to the animal, uh, uh, sorry, to all animals. Uh, in the same way. We, we have to uh, see how the animal responds and adjust our care accordingly. Um, so I did go off on a tangent there, but the... We love tangents. Uh, Keep them coming. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, and now I've lost the spot. Well, sorry, do you mind repeating the question again? Yes, so about, you know, how do you support, um, you know, your members in the welfare questions, ah. goals, like the training that you give them, and of course, your amazing conference and workshops, you do a lot for your members in that space. What are some of the yes. things you do? So, so, and also what we do is, um, when we actually do the assessments for accreditation, it's a very open um, approach. Um, we're, we're there to confirm that the member has done the assessment appropriately, but we're not there to judge the welfare of the animal based on what we think. Um, we recognize that the members are the experts in the care of those particular animals because they know the animal's lived experience and its history, uh, both medically and behaviorally, its quirks, you know, all animals are different to one another. Um, and so it's only the members who will be able to use that information to be relevant in a welfare assessment. And, and so what we need to do is support our members to make sure that when they conduct those self-assessments and give us the results and the outcomes of those assessments, we're there to make sure that they've considered things appropriately. So have they interpreted things the correct way? Have they applied the understanding in the way it's intended to? Have they considered all facts and information in front of them? Or have they cherry picked it? Um, that's the kind of stuff we support our members with um, in, a, in a 
accreditation review. And that being said, um, it's not so much a pass fail test in accreditation. It's more about if we identify together something that needs to be improved, the idea then is to come up with a strategy together to address the problem. And as long as that's achieved, accreditation continues. Um, and so it's all meant to be fair and reasonable and supportive. It's not there to cut people off as such, but it's there to, to help uh, people identify not only issues, but opportunities to do things even better, like enhance good welfare even more and, and come up with um, a, a plan to say, this is how we'll do it. And if it looks good and we all agree to it, then that's what accreditation is um, uh, issued on. Yes, wonderful. And I think, you know, it's so important how you talk about the individual experience, right? Because of course, for a species, we can identify whether it's through like the Delphi methods and, and other methods where we go, okay, so what are the key, you know, aspects of like behaviors that animals want to engage in or need to engage in or aspects of the environment and so on and so on. Um, but then we also can say, okay, so for polar bears, you know, most of this, if not all of this is likely true. Uh, but then for the individual polar bears, then, um, you know, what is true for the individual and what is needed, you know, the needs and preferences and what are the lived experiences as you talked about uh, for those individuals and how do we, you know, make sure we take all these things in consideration. And the word that you keep repeating in various ways uh, throughout this podcast has been around together, doing this together, doing this in supportive ways, whether it's working interdisciplinary uh, on a forum versus, you know, working through the the association and supporting the members and really, you know, this continuous improvement um, and always thinking about how can we, you know, maintain what is very good and also um, add to it so that we can promote uh, optimal well-being and positive experiences even more. So, and that's that's the red thread here, uh, which I think is very key. Uh, that is never we're never done. We always have to keep, you know, working, looking, sensing, and collaborating together from a research and, of course, from a practical experience. And, you know, we have had a wonderful podcast and obviously, like I said at the beginning, we love, you know, animal stories. So in conclusion, Nick, do you have some success stories of like positive welfare for animals, changes that were made perhaps through the accreditation program at ZAR? It would be lovely to end on, a, on, a, on one or multiple uh, animal stories if you have. So, so this is where I can talk forever, I think. Um, Good. So, Good. yeah, so there's, there's a couple of things. I guess, I mean, one of the very first things we um, realised when we started this program was how empowering it was uh, for the zoos involved because it wasn't us as a program telling zoos what they must do. What what we ended up doing is saying to a zoo, well, this this is what your situation looks like regarding the welfare of your animals that you told us. Are you happy with this? And, and even though it was still good, even though the members demonstrated positive welfare was occurring, um, a lot of them said, no, I know I can do better. And, and so it, this really sort of gave uh, our members permission 
um, to to do uh, you know to enhance things even more because even though they've been accredited and they've met the benchmarks, they still felt for themselves because I guess it's fair to say that most people who work in in zoos and aquariums are motivated to do the best for their animals. And so when you show them this is what you've done so far, and here are some areas that we couldn't confirm absolutely to be positive, they looked at those areas and said, I can do something there. I can I can fix this. Even though it wasn't bad, we're just saying we haven't recognised anything positive as such. Um, and so it became a bit of a gap analysis, I suppose, in, in these assessments. And, and it gave the members opportunity to say, I'm going to focus in these areas so that next time you're here, we can show you how good we are at doing this. Um, so really empowering. And, and I guess... Uh, you know, we, we also had a lot of feedback. So from a lot of people who had to go through the assessments, even though initially it, it, it appears daunting, you know, we're, we're asking for evidence, we're asking for research, we're asking, without being subjective or anthropomorphic, we're asking people to tell us how they know their animal is having a good experience. And it it is a bit of a paradigm shift to start thinking that way. Um, and so even though initially it feels like a daunting task, the feedback that we've been getting from a lot of people who complete the review, we always ask for feedback. We always say, how did you find the process? Because our interest, of course, is to make it as easy as possible for, for people participating. Quite a lot of the time, the feedback is, I have learned so much by going through this exercise. I've learned about my animal, I've learned about our organisation, and I've learned what we can do to improve things just by asking themselves to assess themselves against the criteria we provide. We, we don't tell them this. And so it, it's, it's really provided a lot of good opportunities for members to really share what, what they can do. Um, and I've got some more, there's some more uh, species specific examples. So early on in the program, we had a member do a self-assessment and it was for a parrot species here in Australia, also commonly kept as pets. Um, so quite often it's the galahs, um, if you're familiar with those, those birds, um, they uh, sometimes get uh, surrendered to a zoo because it's an ex-pet and they can't afford to care for it anymore. So this one zoo had, over the course of time, acquired three different galahs um, and they're all housed separately in, in different enclosures um, because, you know, they're raised that way, they're alone, they're very human orientated, you know, that uh, was just how you apply the appropriate care to the animal. But when we started asking questions through the assessment, you know, what positive, what opportunities are there for this animal to have positive experiences, experiences through bonding and interacting with others? They kind of went, they realised, why do we keep three parrots separately? They're the same species. Um, there's a chance that they might get, not get along, but we haven't given them a chance to work that out yet. And so they put them together. And first thing they saw was all the alloprening, the interactions, all that stuff started happening. And that was all because all we did was ask a question about, let's not focus on what the standard of care should be. Let's focus on what is the experience the animal is having. And that shifted very quickly the understanding of what opportunities could be provided. Um, it worked in another way where we had a different parrot species where, um, uh, they're provided with a beautiful complex environment, naturally vegetated, very large aviary. Um, it was meant to be a breeding pair. 
a beautiful diet, you know, everything you could think of that these animals needed were provided. Um, but it took one question uh, to turn things around, which was after confirming everything they needed was there in place. The question asked was, are they happy? And anthropomorphic in a way, but we asked the question and the staff who takes care of them said, no, they're miserable. Even though they have everything they want, they hate each other. And so we said, well, you know that. So what are you going to do about it? And uh, the feedback back then was after we left the, um, the review, uh, within a couple of weeks, the member got back to us and said, just to let you know that we've contacted the species coordinator. We've informed them that these two animals aren't, aren't thriving as a pair. Um, and one's been rehomed and a new partner has been sourced for, for the remaining animal. And so just by asking the question, you know, you've provided everything you should be providing to the animal, but do you think the animals are happy with this? And, and straight away they, could, they knew that the answer was no. Um, so, you know, some good stories there. Um, I've had um, people, uh, once we've gone through a training program with them, um, in what positive welfare means and, and what it looks like for the animal and that sort of stuff. Uh, when we went back to do a site review after the training, uh, a lot of their, and this again was a bird enclosure, originally they had one of those traditional bird aviaries which was divided into banks for separate bird species. Um, after the training, pretty much a week after that, after proper consideration, of course, they, they went back and they took out all the partitions um, and the reasoning was they recognised that the opportunities offered to the animals as a result of a greater aviary um, was beneficial. And so now these animals are in a larger aviary, whereas before they'd be in, in smaller partitioned areas um, with a lot more interaction going on, a, a more complex environment, all that sort of stuff was occurring. So all this stuff is actually coming from the members. This, none of this was us telling them they had to do this. Um, it all came from the recognition that um, they saw in their animals an opportunity to provide and they worked to provide it because that's their motivation. Fabulous. Like so many really great stories. And yeah, well, maybe in the future, you know, you can come back on and we only do animal stories uh, because there's <laughs> so many to tell, right? And those are so important. Right. Um, you know, like we said already, to keep in mind all the differences that we have made and we continue to make and the importance of asking questions, you know, and that has been a threat throughout, right? Ask questions, work together, you know, be supportive, be, you know, constructively critical, really look at, is this the best that we can do? And the importance, of course, of updating research, you know, looking at animals from, you know, their lived experience, their positive welfare and across their lifespan, of course. And this whole part, of course, also of empowering, empowering people that they'll say, I know, you know, and I can do better. So we, you know, what are we going to do about it? Right. And they did because they took action of course, after, you know, all the considerations that had to uh, be in place. So, but really looking about, you know, how do we know what the animals are experiencing? Of course, you know, people and their experience of the animals and also scientific research, all these things coming together to understand what are the needs and preferences of these individuals that, in our, that are in our care. So, 
And I think, you know, it's just wonderful that zoo associations across the world have, you know, animal welfare committees and accreditation and, and of course, people like you, Nick, who are, you know, managing these programs and really empowering and supporting the people caring for animals. So thank you so much, Nicholas, for being on to the podcast. And I can't wait to have you back and hear a lot more animal, you know, stories. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. And I really enjoyed it. Thank you. So yes, so well-being for you and the animals is of course too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself. So be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice. So where you can get education, practical tools, you know, so that you can care for yourself and of course you and the animals can flourish. So follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.